Hello, and welcome to the How to Get an Analytics Job podcast. My name is John David Arianson, and I'm your host. I'm what you would call a practicing professor. I have years of experience consulting in the analytics industry, and I have years of experience teaching analytics in the classroom at Greensboro College. This podcast is an ecosystem that I developed for my students so that they could get world-class career advice from leading analytics experts. To date, my students have got to ask questions directly to analysts and data scientists from Amazon, Apple, and Google. They've even got to talk directly to CEOs, CMOs, and presidents of companies who have been former clients of mine to get insights on how senior managers use data to drive their business decisions. If you're interested in becoming one of my students, check the links in the description down below. I'm currently offering two programs. One is a one-month career services program, and the other is an analytics apprenticeship program associated with Greensboro College. In both of those programs, we take a three-tiered hybrid approach. So you'll have access to pre-recorded asynchronous lectures, live group lectures in a cohort setting, and one-on-one coaching with experts in the analytics space. On average, our students are gaining about a $16,000 pay increase going through the program. On the high end, we've actually helped someone achieve a $54,000 pay increase. This means that on average, our students are recouping their investment between one to two months of landing their job. So if you're ready to take your career to the next level, click the links in the description and apply for our program. I would love to get to work with you. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Welcome back to the How to Get an Analytics Job podcast. For all of you who missed that intro, it's back as well. And today we're joined by uh, three beautiful people. We've got two of our apprentices, uh, Drew and Joel, and then we've got Michael Galarnik. So, Michael, welcome back to the podcast because this makes, I think, your fourth appearance on our podcast. Wow, a couple times. I'm happy you're back. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, for our viewers who aren't familiar with who you are and what you do, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> so who I am and what I do changes over time, just like everyone else. Um, so I'm a data scientist by training in some sense of the word. And these days I've gone more into like content marketing and I can kind of go into how I got where I am, I think is probably a good story because most people that are in analytics, data science, um, whatever, they typically don't go in a very like straight path to where they want to go. Um, a lot of people also don't know where they want to go. I didn't know how I wanted to get anywhere. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so for a little context, I graduated with a bachelor's in nanoengineering uh, from UC San Diego, which is essentially like microfluidics, um, steering red blood cells with ultrasound, a bunch of different things. And throughout some of my research, if you're curious, you can Google it, I guess, um, I really kind of discovered I like playing with data and there's a lot of things you can automate with data and showcase to people that can really add a lot of value and drive results. So I decided to get a master's in data science from UC San Diego. And then uh, during that time, uh, one thing I kind of realized is it wasn't enough just going to school 
and just getting good grades or whatever, I had to actually have some proof I could actually do something. So uh, during master's, because I wasn't getting a lot of like hits for jobs um, or people weren't interested in interviewing me, people thought I didn't have skills or whatever, because I had no actual proof that I could actually do what I could say I could do. Um, so then during my time in, at UC San Diego for my master's, I worked as a data scientist at Scripps Research. Um, before that, at, during the master's, I started interning at CME Group, uh, Uptake. I worked at Symer, which is essentially building lasers, which is kind of cool. Um, and I did a bunch of other things as well. And then during all that time, while I was doing my master's, um, some of this stuff kind of overlapped my undergrad, by the way. I started a blog, and it was like a Python blog, a data analysis blog. I created a blog. People reached out to me about making courses because they like my blog. And I started making LinkedIn learning courses and kind of escalated from there. And then eventually, after making all this content, I kind of got into developer relations, which is like getting people to um, like your software or be aware of your software. It was open source software that had like a essentially freemium software. And then eventually through all that, I got into marketing because I started writing all my blogs eventually added up to the point where people saw that I get people to view content. So I got into marketing. And so a lot of my job now is taking campaigns or writing content, getting views for that content. And then in some cases, seeing if that translates to sales or not, because the goal is not always just to get sales. Sometimes you have content to get people to want to apply to your company Sometimes it's content for other purposes as well. It's not just to make sales, which is something I didn't think of in the past. You know, something that you share in common with a lot of our guests is that you have an extremely diverse work experience. Yeah. Um, you find that that often plays a pretty big part in you know what you do at your current job, whatever that might be. I think a lot of experience is very synergistic, even if you don't see your experience being synergistic initially. Um, I do think some people try to stay too close to their home field if they go into analytics, for example. So if like someone has a degree in biology, they might be like, oh, I want to work for a biology company and you know, do analytics for them. And they very much limit themselves to their past domain or past experience. Um, but a lot of the skills from different jobs are transferable. So like even right now, even though my audio may not be perfect, my experience making YouTube content is actually useful for marketing because I can learn, I can edit videos, I can have not the worst audio, just bad audio, I guess. Um, and a lot of stuff really adds. So like my experience making blogs about like Python or setting up uh, something in Tableau or whatever, I've actually used that in my marketing job. And that's made me more efficient and it helped me get where I am today. You've used Tableau in your current marketing job? I've had to, yeah. Not what, much. What more? Yes, just like generally. Well, if you want to kind of look at like how effective a marketing campaign is, it helps have visuals. Um, am I doing anything crazy? No. Am I doing anything crazy with Python these days in my job? Yeah, a little bit. But a lot of it is really just can you pick up a tool for a use case that you currently have and then translate it to business value? So making a, a marketing dashboard, for example, very useful to kind of see what's working and what is clearly, clearly not working and then kind of visualize it. Because if you just have raw numbers, sometimes it's not very useful. 
Yeah, and and the thing is, is it's like you're you're not even specifically focused on knowing how to use the tools because those mm-hmm. are those are constantly evolving in the data in mm-hmm. the data sphere. You're more focusing on the applications of them, and you know yeah. what what can I actually use them for? What can I make? What useful thing can I make with this? Yeah, and the one difference between being on the job versus not being on the job, when sometimes when you're on the job, it's quick and dirty if it's just for an internal sort of thing. Um, or your own personal use case, if you're doing something for like an interview or you're doing something for your public portfolio, the stuff in your portfolio has to be flawless or as close to flawless as possible because you want to put your best foot forward because that is something that you know you want to prepare for interviews or to have your name out there Um, versus on the job. Sometimes it's like, I got to get this task done. I got to hit my OKR, my goal or whatever. Um, And then versus the job, it's something that you continuously iterate on for like, sorry, for a portfolio for like getting interviews and stuff. That's something you should iterate on based on interview feedback or lack thereof and kind of build yourself out there. Right. And I was, you know, I was going to say, you, you mentioned the word perfect. I don't necessarily think that everything you have to put out there on your public portfolio has to be perfect. I think that when you're going into an interview setting, what you take into that setting should be perfect. That should mm-hmm. be a completed project, something that you can feel really confident talking mm-hmm. about. But as, term, as far as getting your name out there, I mm-hmm. think the more work that you show, the better. What would you say about that? So when you initially start, I believe you need to get things out as quick and dirty as possible. Like get something out there. So having something is better than absolutely nothing. And that's something I think a lot of people kind of have a blockage whether it's a mental block or it's something else, sometimes just getting something out there is so much better than having nothing. Cause then you can show an interviewer, Hey, I've actually done something. And they'll be like, Oh, I see you have, you know, a skill. Maybe it's a C skill versus an A skill maybe, but it shows actual competency. And then based on that interview, you kind of iterate or based on someone looking at a dashboard on a podcast or something, um, then you improve it. Right. Yeah. We are we are kind of jumping ahead a little bit because we're yeah. assuming that the person has already got the in an interview setting, yeah. gotten the best foot forward already. Mm-hmm. What about for those people who maybe haven't quite gotten their foot in the door yet? They've done the work mm-hmm. and they they're starting the networking phase because I think this is mm-hmm. this is where Drew and Joel, you guys are are, are at right now, mm-hmm. is you've done the work, you've got your network built up, and now it's the next step is finding somebody who you're really who you can really get close with, either a mentor or a, a a hiring manager or something like that. How, how do you find people like that? Well, how do I find people if I'm looking to hire or is it finding people um, I suppose looking for a job yourself? I suppose a better quite, what, way to ask this question is if you're looking for your job yourself, how do you find somebody who is ex- extremely interested in you? Well, I think the biggest thing is making it as easy as possible for the person to either refer you or to think that you're a quality candidate. So that is having something public that you can quickly share a link of when you're like, hey, I'm looking for a job if you're networking or whatever. Or someone talks to you like, hey, what are you doing? Are you looking for a job? What skills do you have? And you're like, oh, I can send you that dashboard. I can send you um, a link if you're, let's say, more on the programming end of the analytics. Um, I can send you a Jupyter notebook of my code analysis or Kaggle kernel or whatever. That makes it so much easier for people to think you have skills it's a lot more social proof that people eventually will reach out to you rather than the other way around if you have a big enough presence. So you need need to build authorities to a certain aspect, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't just say something. Um, It doesn't 
always work that way, then it's possible. Sometimes you can say something to believe you, but having amazing things to show people is, it makes it so much easier to get your foot in the door. Right. Yeah, I, I understand that completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that Drew and Joel, you guys can probably agree with this. I, well, how, how, how do you guys, do you guys feel comfortable where, where you've started in the analytics space? You know, you've gone through the Silverton analytics program. That was a, that was a four week experience. Um, and that was very iterative as well, where we take a week by week approach and you try to build on what you did the previous week. Um, do you feel like that's been successful for you thus far? Do you feel like there's any places that you, that maybe you, you still need to work on? Well, I feel like the nice thing is that um, each week you're kind of working with a different tool. I think one mistake that a lot of people make is they get stuck on a tool for like a month or two. I honestly think you just need to dive in into a couple of tools, start off with one tool one week, go on to another tool next week, and just get an extremely introductory knowledge of a certain tool. And then after you kind of have the introduction to a lot of the main tools you're going to be using, then you kind of can go on to that intermediate phase. And then just keep on building from there and then decide what tool you like and then go into maybe an advanced stage in that tool. But I would say I kind of slowed myself down by saying, let's study this for a month or two when I should have kind of looked at it, moved on, looked at something else, and then circled back to what I wanted to learn more in depth. Yeah, I think it's important to know enough to be dangerous in a couple of areas. Um, it's, it's nice to have a full toolbox to, 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 to utilize because what I think what a lot of people fall into is the specialist trap where you, oh, yeah. you let you brand yourself as, Oh, I'm a Tableau specialist. I'm a power BI specialist. And, and Michael, I, I want to know your thoughts on that. What's your thoughts mm-hmm. on specialism, specializing in something? We're going to take a quick pause from the episode so that I can give you some more information about our career services program. Over the last four years, I have developed a very effective approach to teaching the foundations of analytics. And I've taken that same curriculum from my case studies and business analytics class at Greensboro College and turned it into a career services program. So if you've ever thought to yourself as you're listening to this podcast, man, John David's students are really lucky. You can have a very similar experience to them. Just check the link in the description down below. My career services program offers you an analytics foundations curriculum. So this will shore up any gaps in knowledge that you might have in landing either a promotion or maybe even your very first analytics job. And then you get to work one-on-one with me to help build your personal brand. So we will look at your resume and also help you develop a customized portfolio. All right, let's get back to the episode. So a couple things. So whatever tool you choose, it's about solving a problem. So sometimes having a a wide knowledge of just tools in general or having used one once or twice or a couple times um, is really good because then you can be like, oh, I can do this in this tool a lot easier than this tool. And you can actually get value. And then that way is also, it's also good for like any of your questions. So someone asks like, oh yeah, like, hey, why'd you choose this tool versus this tool? Um, That also comes up quite often. Um, but once you have that kind of introductory, like wide net, um, you kind of want to specialize just a little bit or have, um, some project that's more in depth and at least one tool it could be multiple tools. Um, I think one thing I've seen that's kind of cool. Some people have done is they do one project in one tool and they do the exact same project in another tool. 
Um, that's a really good learning experience. I've seen someone do that for like a job one time. I was really impressed. Yeah. Um, well, and, and you're telling that story right now. So it's like yeah. that person who interviewed with you mm -hmm. uh, is still in your head. How many years ago? I mean, it's like four years ago. Yeah. I mean, do you I'm even old. know? It's, it's like, well, that's just an example. I mean, you, so you just gave an example of how to stick mm -hmm. in an interviewer's head. Um, yeah. Can you think of any other ways? Because I think that's what the key is to getting hired is, is really becoming memorable. I, I think a lot of it is when you go through resumes, and I don't do a ton of hiring at, at this current job because I, I just started. Uh, I can talk about what I do later if you like. But I, I think a, a big thing is having some proof on a resume or some link to something because it's really hard when you're just looking through resumes to kind of be like, oh, does this person actually know what they're talking about? Is there some way they they're an authority on this are they authentic because resumes all read the same but there's a link you're like oh this person's kind of cool um or this person has something to show so i at least know that's a checkbox oh they know that they're what they're talking about or they can actually show something i think that's the resumes that really like stick out to me um i don't like when people are like i'm a highly motivated skilled you know whatever and i'm like right, everyone's okay. highly motivated Everyone's, Everyone's highly, motivated. highly motivated. If you're applying for jobs, that is you being highly motivated right there. Or like, I'm interested in like resumes. It really helps when, first of all, people have a structured resume. There's a link to something they've actually done. There's some proof. I know a lot of people say like, oh, a lot of work I've done is not allowed to be shared. Well, if you're looking for a job and it's taking three months, six months, nine months, when you're looking for a job, part of your job could be building a public presence. And it's hard because that's not really paid work necessarily up front, but it's kind of investing in making an online presence. Right. And it's, it's a really hard concept for people because if you're just applying for jobs, doing the same thing month after month after month, then and expecting a different result, expecting for results, then that's not always a great idea. The it's definition a approach. of sanity. <laughs> I, I do like the hustle. I've yeah. uh, one summer when I was in uh, undergrad, um, I applied for like, 300, 500, something crazy uh, internships. And I was doing the same resume, the same bad old nanoengineering resume. Um, and I landed up interning at NASA. And I was the only interview I got, the only one. And it was because I was at UC San Diego and it was a program actually for uh, UC Santa Cruz. And I don't know how that happened, but I somehow got in that program and I made basically minimum wage, if that. Um, on like a fellowship, but anyway, so hustle is very important. Whenever well, you, you bring up, you bring but... up a valid point with, <laughs> with education. It's that, yeah. it's that when you were starting your career, you didn't <laughs> instantly launch into a 70, $80,000 a year analytics job. You <laughs> had to take one step forward, forward uh, backwards before you could take two forwards. Yeah. There was a lot of weird steps. It, it was windy. A lot of weird steps. A lot of weird windy steps. Any so, that you would care to elaborate on? <laughs> so, I mean, I can talk about like where I, I currently am because I maybe started a little bit more analytics based and then I went to data science and then I kind of gone to marketing data science, I guess, or marketing data analytics, depending on how you want to say. Um, but back when I first uh, started like going more into the teaching, I, I did some teaching at UC San Diego Extension. And then I wanted to make a class for Stanford Human Studies at the time. It was like a basic machine learning class, like basic. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't have the time to make the class and still have a full-time job. And I made the 
not necessarily the smartest decision to quit my job at Scripps Research uh, Translational Institute, where I was doing a lot of like uh, research on like wearable devices like Fitbits and stuff. And uh, I still wear my Fitbit today, ironically, um, in January 2020 to make this course. And I figured, oh, it would take, you know, let's say four weeks. Um, and ended up taking like eight weeks by then COVID started. And it was a bit harder to get a job because I was, I was still consulting on the side. So I was still making some money. Um, but I quit that job to start teaching. And after that, it took a while to kind of find a full-time job that was um, good for my career, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Because I quit a job to make a course, um, which actually ended up being really good for my career in the long run, surprisingly. But I turned down my salary to go make a course that had delayed income. Well, it's, it's, it's all, it's all where you value your time. So it's like, yeah. do you value your time more in the future or mm -hmm. would you rather have a more immediate return? It oftentimes that depends on the person mm -hmm. and oftentimes it also just depends on whatever the return on investment is for whatever yeah. you're deciding to do other than the other thing. I'll give and, another example similar to, it's actually very mm -hmm. similar. It reminded me of when you were talking mm -hmm. of this use case, um, Gabrielle, who was in, she was on the podcast a, a little while back and she was also in our apprenticeship cohort. Um, she was a single mother and she had decided to quit her full-time job as well to mm -hmm. fully engage with our course. Um, and when, when she got out of our course, she ended up making significantly more, actually $50,000 more than she was before, mm -hmm. before she came in our course. But it's a very, it's, it's, it's about the, the, the dedication is what it is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, being dedicated to, I need to improve. And it's finding mm -hmm. the areas that you're weak in. That's that's difficult. What uh, is? Uh, do you struggle with that as well? Like figuring out exactly where you, what you don't know, because sometimes it can be really easy to know what you. Know. I mean, uh, initially, um, I thought I knew a lot of stuff when I first came out of school, or you know, interning or whatever. Um, and now I realize I know nothing. <laughs> I know very little. <laughs> I don't know if that's where you want to go with the question, but I mean, yeah, um, pretty much. I think it's it's like you like you kind of hinted. It's recognizing what you don't know, and how at least when I was interviewing, how to show people that I've made effort to fill in the gaps, if that makes sense. So, like uh, when I first started jobs, yes, I could you know manipulate data in let's say Python or Tableau, but I wasn't great about getting the data into the, you know tools efficiently. So often data was stored in databases. Um, so I kind of realized that and kind of worked on my SQL queries and stuff like that. Um, and I realized there's no proof I knew that. So then I, you know, worked on some like basic public portfolio content and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's not always um, easy to recognize your faults because we have so many. I have more than I'd say most people. Um, but recognizing your faults and kind of filling those gaps in your public presence is really important. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as far as being able to show, like maybe some people are saying they're not able to show the work that they do. Mm -hmm. um, showing part of the work that you say you mm -hmm. can do yeah. builds that rapport for you. Because it's yeah. like if, you, if, you're, if you're saying you can do this and then you're saying you can do another thing mm -hmm. and you don't prove that you can do the first thing, how am I supposed to believe that you can do SQL code? Yeah, it's it's really sad. It's but that's at least the process, especially if you're looking for a job and you know it'll take a while. While you're applying for jobs, most people have some downtime. Mm -hmm. um, 
or they can make an hour or whatever, um, work on the kind of public presence stuff or work on uh, interview questions that you failed on in the past if you've gone interviews is really important as well. I'm going all over the place here, kind of like my career, but it's these are really, really important things. Um, so publicly showing something, um, making some, you know, dummy sort of thing to show online is really good. Because uh, also you learn something in the process too by kind of firming up your gaps. Right. Um, and so if you have someone asked you, have you done this before in an interview? And like, oh, I'm sorry, we decided to go another way with someone more experienced in X. Well, when I fail that kind of interview for X, I work on X and I show X somewhere or another. Um, so one comment people had for me before I started a job in developer relations is like, hey, you don't make a lot of advanced content. So I started making more advanced content for some stuff. Um, and then that helped me get the job that I, one job I got, and then that helped me get a different job and so on and so forth. It's very additive because mm -hmm. like when you make content for one job often, it often helps you, you know, a job or two down the line, if that makes sense. Right. You just start it doesn't go away. You start referencing yourself. You yeah. Uh, that's, 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 that's the, I mean, that's the ideal though, is you're able yeah. to confidently, mm -hmm. uh, say, oh, I did this before. Let me just go back and grab that. Yeah, even if it doesn't seem very relevant at the time um, or may not seem relevant, you know, how is this relevant three years from now? Sometimes it can be. And it's really helpful to kind of pick that back up. So from like, an organization perspective, from an, like staying organized perspective, mm -hmm. I mean, um, yeah. is that do you, do you have any recommendations on how how to uh, stay organized with your content? Yeah, or yeah. yeah. Stay organized with anything. Well, um, with 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 your I suppose with your content. Yeah, because so. There's a lot of different ways to kind of approach this. So if you have a lot of low quality content, I, I really believe in having a couple strong pieces to kind of refer back to because the really strong stuff you do is going to be referenceable for years and years and years. Like I have some publications for my undergrad and a lot of things that I used to care about, like grades and stuff, no one cares what my undergrad grades were. My publications though, they're there forever, whether I want them to be or not. So that's something I can reference if someone's like, hey, do you have experience writing technical content that's academic in nature? It's like, okay, sure. My publications are on Google Scholar. You can look them up. Mm -hmm. um, or I have some old blogs about like box plots, for example, something really simple. Um, but I did a really good job on that. I can reference that forever because it's pretty clean content. And I've moved it from different sites over time maybe, but I can still reference it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's... The basic thing for content, same thing with dashboards. If you have something on Tableau Public, if it's it will exist, um, you can kind of have that forever. Or if you made a video about your dashboard and put it on YouTube, um, even if you put it on Listed or whatever, you can always reference something later on down the road. Mm -hmm. um, these are really, really valuable things to have. And as far as organization, um, I believe simple file systems work pretty well on your computer. Um, if you're in the coding realm where you're not necessarily using uh, BI tools, um, having a, a GitHub, if you're coding in Python or R or whatever, is very nice. And then having a README that explains what you're doing or what you did is nice, because you'll forget what you did five years ago, I promise you. I forgot what I did yesterday for work. So <laughs> organization helps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so we've kind, of, we've kind of covered a range of topics here, and yeah. I want to bring it back to the interview process. We talked mm -hmm. about personal branding. We yeah. talked about how to get your name in front of an interviewer. Um, now, let's say you've gotten the interview and mm -hmm. you, you, you're you getting ready for like an informal 
mm-hmm. uh, interview setting. setting. Um, mm-hmm. at, from an interviewer's perspective, how, how do you expect those calls to go? So uh, one really important thing, and I think everyone's kind of mentioned this if they've been on this podcast or anywhere else, is it's nice if someone did some research. And I know if you have like 10 different interviews, they're really hard to do research. Um, and this happens sometimes, especially when the job market was really hot, like a couple months ago or six months ago, a year, depending on how you want to see it. Um, if people did research in the company, what we're trying to accomplish, why we're trying to accomplish it, and kind of what the job description is, because oftentimes, and this sounds crazy, unless you had a lot of interviews or in case you forgot what you applied for, which happens all the time, um, they didn't read the job description um, or they remember the job description. So I recommend you kind of save a PDF of that in case it disappears later on. Um, it's nice time people do the research, know what's going on. So those are things I'm kind of looking for. Um, is someone punctual? Are they on time? Like, are they, you know, uh, happy to be there? Are they excited? Um, those are things that are like positive signs. And those are things that anyone can really do. Um, punctuality, something, things happen sometimes and that's kind of unfair, but that's pe- things people are looking for. Yeah. Uh, you know, before, before, mm-hmm. uh, we hopped on the podcast here, you mm-hmm. were, you were mentioning, uh, how you felt sometimes interview questions were unfair. Um, yeah, that happens what, a lot. What, what did you, what did what did you mean by that? Okay. So, uh, oftentimes people ask, first of all, sometimes people don't want to hire the candidate on the phone. Like that's just kind of a fact of life. They have a friend they want to hire or they're doing the interview, even though they have an internal candidate, but they have to legally do it or whatever. Those are, so people might make the interviews a bit harder for certain people versus others, which is horrible. Um, And that's bias and that's, there's a lot of horrible things people do, but that's one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like a courtesy interview. I've, literally been the person being interviewed where it was clear they're interviewing me for as a courtesy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other things are sometimes people will ask you questions about problems they're actually trying to solve themselves. So like currently I'm trying to, you know, tie like people viewing our website and increases in people viewing our websites due to content to sales. This, well, this is for your, this is for your current job. Let's say it is. Okay. I can't say exactly what uh, I mean, yeah, but yeah, yeah. like, like, for a job. <laughs> yeah, it's for a job. Uh, I have a lot of jobs, but um, it's for a job and it's not an easy task. Sometimes people hire people to solve problems they can't solve themselves. So if it's, you know, tying that to sales or tying content to people reaching out about jobs or it's tying, um, you know, X to Y, it's not always an easy kind of connection. Versus in oftentimes in data you find online, it's pretty clear. You have a nice clean data set, you have something and it's pretty clear we want to accomplish. Sometimes someone's like, Hey, I have this data set. What can you do with it? Well, honestly, I might not know, like I'm looking for ideas here and the, the right answer is there's no answer right. for a lot of questions. And that's really the unfairness of the interview process. Additionally, sometimes they put something in a job description um, that people don't want, or they don't actually want themselves, but they just have some boilerplate job description. Um, and you might study all these tools, but someone that knows what the company actually does behind the scenes knows they don't need to study that. Mm-hmm. Or conversely, there's something, some technique or some 
knowledge base they're looking for that's not really in um, the job description or it's not publicly available or, you know, a bunch of different things. So, yeah, you yeah. make some really good points, especially mm -hmm. about um, kind of knowing your audience. Mm -hmm. um, you need to know, you need to get a general grasp of how the interviewer is, is how their mood is as well, mm -hmm. what they're expecting, how, like, if you're going into a technical interview, how mm -hmm. well do they know the data? Do they know it at all? Mm -hmm. uh, do you need to, do you need to maybe give them some pointers here or there, mm -hmm. um, point them in the right direction? Do you need to come to a conclusion? Do you need to mm -hmm. ask a question? These are all things that I, that... yeah. And asking questions to the interviewer is very important too. <laughs> yeah. As far as like job skills, as you mentioned. Well, well just any old question or <laughs> like, okay. So if someone asks you, Hey, could you, uh, perform, you know, analysis that shows that our product is more valuable than X product or where we're lagging or whatever. Um, sometimes you have to ask, like, do I have this column of data? Is this column reliable? Like, are we missing a lot of values in this column? Like, is this analysis even possible? Like, not you don't have to ask, is analysis possible? But ask quite like, clarifying questions. Um, and also, sometimes you want to also communicate during while you're trying to solve some problem. It's more like a programming thing, but it's also, I'm sure, true for dashboards. Uh, from what I remember, like, actually interviewing people about dashboards is people talking out loud about like, here's why I did this versus this, if you're showing a portfolio project, for example. But if someone shows you, hey, here's some, you know, visual I have or some analysis, um, asking people questions about that analysis can give you ideas for why they did it and for your suggestions on how to improve it, mm -hmm. if it's a question like that. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. Uh, yeah. Uh, real quick, Joel, <laughs> uh, Drew, do you, do you guys have any questions for Michael? We kind of, we've kind of been... You've kind of been letting you've got kind of been letting us lecture here for a little bit. But, uh, ask literally anything, yeah, or nothing, whatever. You so want. I do have one question. I know you talked yeah. about um, marketing campaigns, and I wrote down yeah. a question here. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you measure the impact and effectiveness of a marketing campaign, and make data-driven optimizations? So that's not easy because it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, is it getting a certain click-through rate to get people to a website? to get people to get to the website and sign up for something, it, if that's like an ad campaign. Is it um, increasing SEO or capturing keywords? Um, is it having a marketing campaign that gets X number of people to a page and sign up for something um, in a certain budget? So if initially you have budget X and you do budget Y and you hit you know some metric you're trying to achieve, but you cost a lot more than expected, well, those are things to kind of measure. Um, and these are kind of things I'm kind of learning about too myself. And that's one thing that people don't realize interviewers themselves are also learning because they're sometimes doing skills they're not great in because there's no one else to do it or um, whatever. So if you have a good idea, or if you have an idea of like um, what to do, then often you tell the interviewer. So like, sometimes you ask me a question as an interviewer, um, I'm gonna ask you a question back. So in general, like, how would you tie um, or how would you consider a campaign successful if I'm trying to get people to view a web page, for example? I'm asking a question. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, uh, <laughs> I kind of missed that end part then. Yeah. Um, so how would you determine if a campaign successful? Um, how would you show me a campaign successful or my boss's boss, for example? I guess it kind of depends like what you said on 
for I guess the first process would be kind of like um, defining an objective. Mm -hmm. And it really depends on the objective you're talking about. Like if you just want people to click through and see it Mm -hmm. and you're targeting that click through rate, then essentially you're going to probably ask yourself like, what's the best way to accomplish that? And that could be something like organic marketing or Mm -hmm. things of that nature, where you display something that they, that attracts their attention and they just click it as opposed Mm -hmm. to if you have something where you want them to buy it on the other end, Mm -hmm. then you're probably going to want to sell the product before they click that link. Mm -hmm. Oh, awesome. So one thing I've heard from some people last couple of years, and I've kind of seen this myself is, um, there's a lot less ability to track people these days. So like, it's a little bit harder to kind of determine like I've heard that as where well. sales are coming from. So these are also, by the way, things to consider if people ask you during your campaign, like, hey, um, our campaigns are less, less successful last couple of years. What could it be? Um, it's also about being aware about like GDPR and link and tracking and stuff. You can kind of mention that in like when people ask you questions, because those are important things if you're coming from like ad background. Um, if you're data analytics, you'll come across ads at some point as a domain. Um, so if someone says like, hey, let's, um, if I asked you, uh, why is this campaign potentially less successful than two years ago when you ran it, even though we're a bigger company, um, mentioning, well, last couple of years, the loss changed, blah, blah, blah. And you know, this is why potentially this can happen. Um, one thing to mention about when I asked you a question about like, how can you determine if a campaign is successful? You have no care, you have some sort of metric, but sometimes things do not go well and you have to find some sort of silver lining. So, hey, people didn't actually come to our website, but for whatever reason, we got a, like a thousand more followers on LinkedIn um, and that made our future campaigns more successful or you know, finding other metrics to have if for some reason you can't track a metric. So with link tracking um, or ability to track people less, well, what other metrics could you use? So and give rationale for why you think metric X is no longer applicable, basically. So I've learned that one as well. Wow. Yeah. As a very, as a very robust answer to a great question. Um, I have a question here. Um, yeah. So I mean, I guess, uh, you know, chat GPT was recently mm-hmm. introduced to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of preliminary as far as what impact it'll have on, you know, fields like ours. But mm-hmm. what what are your thoughts on like how automation, you know, artificial intelligence, ChatGPT will have, you know, an impact on analytics? So, a couple things. ChatGPT is good about regurgitating common knowledge. Um, and it's not really good at math, for example um or analytics um and it sometimes it gives way too confident answers so you still have to validate whether something's correct or not um what i think it's really fantastic about is like uh, crafting tweets or posts or those sort of things it's really fantastic at because somebody's using a template or an email um to someone you can craft uh, a boilerplate email if you have to write a complicated email or something um i think that's really changing and making people more efficient because oftentimes in bigger companies, especially, there's a lot of very repetitive things you have to do or very um, boilerplate things you have to do. So I think that's a big impact for industry as far as like verifying and writing a complete article about something very technical. It only regurgitates stuff that's currently out there, not stuff that is 
current, if that makes sense. They're not stuff that you want to write about that's like new or hot or whatever. So, My hope is that artificial intelligence one day will take me completely out of the data cleaning process because that stuff is a pain in the neck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would love, I would love to be able to design uh, some kind of, I'm saying Python, but mm-hmm. whatever code happens in the future, something yeah. to, to clean everything for me. So I don't have to get in there. It's going to be hard. <laughs> I know. No, I know. I, I, I don't even know if it's possible right now. And I, I think a lot of the data cleaning tools, or even if you want to go in the ML space, like Audible ML, um, they have some use, but the problem is they require knowledge to use and know about their assumptions and what they do with the data. So having an ability to verify whether something's correct or not is so important because oftentimes your decisions and now comes your models or visualizations can impact real people in real life. So the ability will always, you always have a need to have a person to kind of verify whether something's true or not. Um, and models are often too confident about their predictions or about their outputs. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, that's the thing is, is I always, it's, it's always having to go back and check the data that I've cleaned and say, did mm-hmm. I do this right? That's, I think that's the worst mm-hmm. part about the cleaning process. Cause then you start to doubt yourself and you start to get in your own head. It's like, oh mm-hmm. man, cause when, once you catch one mistake, then it's like, oh, where's the next one at? Guaranteed you made a mistake. It's just how bad is the mistake? Yeah. And it's, it's always a challenge cause there's conflicting goals always there's doing things fast and good um oftentimes is kind of divergent goals often you can't always do things fast and well um so there's always gonna be a quality issue with your work you ever seen that triangle where it's like cheap good fast you have Mm -hmm. to pick two as like a job sometimes people want things like um cheap quality and you know fast and there's always some sort of constraint that something has to suffer so this is also something you can mention in interviews like um is is someone asks you like hey can you do this you know xyz if someone gives you some sort of take-home task and it's over eight hours let's say they want you to spend maximum eight hours or maximum four maximum two hours and it's timed well obviously the product you give is not gonna be perfect so sometimes getting like a a very simple version of what you wanted to do just done and then kind of iterate on that in the time you have remaining in the interview process is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I wrote a blog that got me my most recent job, for example, and the initial version of the blog, they said, Hey, take X number of hours for the blog. Well, I spent X number of hours, but I made sure I had, you know, intro conclusion, uh, a couple of paragraphs and then kind of, you know, base content there. Mm-hmm. And then, because I want to have something actually completed. So I, I sacrificed um, quality for fast. Um, and you might see this other times in interview processes where um, they give you some sort of challenge on interview, like, hey, can you make this you know, dashboard? Or could you make this you know, analysis of the data? Or can you answer some question? Where normally if you had some sort of question for work, you'd actually spend time researching the question. Like, oh, how, how would I track you know, content views, or how can I make more engaging content, or um, how could I make the analytics process better? Well, your answer is not going to be as perfect as you would be in real life, because first of all, you're under stress or pressure. Mm-hmm. Interviews are not fun always. Some people enjoy them, uh, like me a little bit these days. Um, but 
you're going to sacrifice something. So just know that if you're interviewing, it's not going to go perfect as you would if you had two hours to work on it at home and peace and quiet, no stress, no pressure. Um, so there's always a give and take for things. I'll give you, well, I'll give you another example of, of one of our students who came to us. Uh, they were in an interview process that was, they had gone, they had seen like nine different people. Mm -hmm. And this was for a, this was not for even a major senior role. This was for an mm -hmm. entry level startup position at a company. And they had to do like, they had to do like a bunch of unnecessary work. They had to commit like hours and hours of their time to this. Yeah. And I mean, you're, you're laughing already. I mean, you, it's just obviously an abnormal case, but it just goes yeah. to show that every interviewer, once again, like mm -hmm. we said at the beginning is different. And so yeah. it's just, and did they get the job or no, no, no. Well, we told, we told them what, why are you even still trying to, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's just at that point, it's work. It's frankly, the, it's the work and their company is trying to get you to do work for free. And it's, it's a little bit of a moral gray area there. And that case of it's work for free. I would honestly just post it online as long as you're not going to get sued. Yeah. Like, Hey, make it a portfolio project, put it online, get something out of it and kind of move on with your life. You know, maybe anonymize the data if there's a new data or something a little bit, um, or change the data a little bit to be completely different mm -hmm. and then get something out of it to kind of, at least so you don't waste your time completely. So then you can use it for interview, uh, the next interview or the interview after that or whatever. Um, cause some stuff I've done for interviews in the past, is online currently as we speak 110 mm percent -hmm. so you could probably figure out what it is if you look hard enough but yeah yeah you know that's actually not even a bad mm -hmm. idea either because i you know i've i've been consulting for a little while at this point mm -hmm. and there's been i've had great clients and i've had mm -hmm. not so great clients yeah and some of those not so great clients just kind of drop off a cliff after a little while mm -hmm. and you never and sometimes it's hard to reach them sometimes you don't get paid all you should have mm -hmm. and it's like that was a great idea. Just like, hey, if you're gonna screw me, why can't? <laughs> I mean, you know. I've been screwing them because usually these interview tasks should be something that is not relevant for the company. Um, so yeah, you maybe anonymize or maybe change, you know, a couple of details to make it more generic. Making things generic is also pretty good for SEO and stuff too, by the way. Um, also for for just applying in general. For yeah, just applying for jobs. your data to show yeah. what you've done. Yeah, and assuming you're not breaking laws, I mean, obviously do some research, make sure you're doing things legally and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that is really valuable because, you know, you learn something from it, right? And this might be something else that a different company wants. So I think it's an option. Let's put it that way. So, mm -hmm. so we've talked about, I think, about every stage of the mm -hmm. interview process, except yeah. maybe the kinds of questions that interviewers ask. Mm -hmm. And I know you say that interviewers sometimes ask unfair questions, but I, I know that you did prepare a couple of questions for Drew and Joel. Mm -hmm. um, Drew and Joel, I was wondering if you guys would be interested in getting some actual questions from a, a real ex-data recruiter. Well, not recruiter, but Close interviewer. Enough. Close enough. That <laughs> All right, I'm down. Yeah. Okay. Well, but then, then Joel, since you're so down, let's start with you, huh? <laughs> so, I mean, these are questions you've probably been asked, and these are really simple questions. So, like, um, base questions. So, like, uh, let's say you're interviewing for, like, let's say a tablet developer job or a business intelligence analyst. Um, so, like, what tools have you used? Because I'm just kind of curious. Either you. I don't know. Uh, for me personally, 
I've been using Excel for honestly like the majority of my life. Like just mm -hmm. been constantly taking Excel since I was like in I don't know middle school, high school. Mm -hmm. um, uh, more recently, I've also been learning a lot of Power BI, Tableau. Mm -hmm. Kind of digging into a little bit of Python too. Mm -hmm. So, a question that you get pretty commonly is, like, when would you use Power BI versus Tableau versus Python for something? Like, when is Python better than, let's say, Tableau? I'm most familiar with the Power BI and Tableau, but I would mm -hmm. say Power BI is a lot easier for like smaller or medium-sized organizations to use. The, the cost up front for Power BI tends to be less than Tableau usually. Um, Power BI, you know, interfaces with all the Microsoft products, whereas Tableau doesn't quite mm -hmm. as well. Um, you pay a premium, I think, with Tableau. It, it does things very well, mm -hmm. but there is a little bit more of a premium as far as the cost compared to Power BI. Mm -hmm. So uh, something that comes up because I, I work at different companies is sometimes people have their data in very, very different places. Um, so even though you know, part of our like tech stack is on Azure, like some of our data is in AWS. So does Power BI allow you to get data from AWS or Google Cloud or like how would, is that possible? Just checking your general knowledge about the tool, by the way. Yeah, that'd be the kind of question that I would say, you know, I will research that and get back to you. I mean, I know there are, you know, pros and cons as far as what environments you can interact with mm -hmm. between the two tools. Um, yeah, so I would I'd probably follow up with the interview on that, but okay. yeah. Um, and by the way, that's like a, it's kind of an unfair question in some regards because those are things you could literally Google and that interviewer is like just asking a yeah, question, right? It takes five seconds. It takes five seconds to Google and there's always some sort of, you know, problem that someone else has probably had with that, that like there's been a solution. Um, I will so, tell you, I will tell you from personal experience mm -hmm. that connecting to Azure and Power BI is a complete and utter hassle. You can do it, but it's just, mm -hmm. uh, for me, that's surprising because they're both Microsoft products. Yeah, it's just the live warehouse side of things. I think Power BI just really struggles with live data. I don't know what it is. Maybe, or maybe maybe it was just me. Maybe it was user error. But or maybe it was a while back. Maybe it was a while changed, back. Or using an old version of Power and BI. And I've grown. I've, I've become more. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so the other question, because you said you've you know used Power BI and you've done a little bit of Python, and for an interviewer who's not listening to you, um, a question you might get is, so how do I integrate um, my visualizations in from Power BI? Sorry, how do I integrate my Python scripts into Power BI? Is that something you've done before? Um, is there proof you've done that? Or how would I do that? Or is it even possible? Um, personally, I haven't worked on that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Not sure if Hunter or Drew have. Yeah, I haven't. I actually haven't done that either. Mm -hmm. I I'm not super experienced with Python either. I think that's mm -hmm. I have. I'm I'm probably in the same realm of mm -hmm. SQL knowledge as Drew and Joel are right now, where it's very mm -hmm. entry level. We just got into mm -hmm. it kind of deal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so from a, from a technicals perspective, I don't think that, uh, mm-hmm. that, yeah, no, just no experience with that. Yeah. And that happens. Um, so just FYI, some people like have some uh, ML scripts that they integrate into Power BI from Python. Um, but these are the type of things people will get asked that aren't necessarily fair. But if you see people ask questions on like, preface this, I should rephrase this. Sometimes before interviews, it's also good to go in like Glassdoor um, and see what people ask. Because often they ask the same questions and people post about it in Glassdoor previously, especially if it's like a bigger company. Um, so like that's something like I asked like years and years ago, um, back in the Stone Age. And that was a question I got about Tableau and um, and of course, back then you could, it was like a new feature. So, um, and then, so final question, and this is like, I've asked a lot of random seemingly useless questions. Um, but is there any sort of personal project anyone's proud of that, uh, you like to show or present and tell me the kind of value of it really? Cause maybe it's useful for my company, whatever I do. Joel, do you have do you have a project that you wanted to that you wanted to pull up? Just readily, I know it's kind of on the spot, but uh, I, I don't have anything to present. But um, I mean, recently I worked with a multi million dollar company to really help them find data insights that they were not uncovering. Um, a lot of their data was all just manually entered. And it was like a large, you know, facility where everything was just manually entered and, um, yeah, they needed Power BI dashboards to really show, you know, their CEO and their CFO insights and yeah, just incredibly powerful when you can uh, give them that data and uh, show them what they're missing. So like, what were some of the problems with the manually entered data? As Hunt mentioned, sometimes you have weird stuff mainly through data, or you have data processing issues, or whatever. Um, one of the big problems was like the date tables. Like if you're familiar mm-hmm. with like like the scaffolding and like creating like a separate date table to kind of interface with the rest of the data, um, mm-hmm. Power BI tends to have some issues with that. So you have to create a table to yeah get to really you know sync with the data relationship problems <laughs> <laughs> uh dates are always a problem i would say um i was just kind of curious and these are sort of things that you can mention like in interviews by the way so if someone's like oh it's a problem like insights um so like take me through the process of it well i got the data and it was handed through data so the accuracy sometimes not perfect or the i had to reformat the dates and then, like, what kind of insights did you share? Well, I mean, what were the insights, basically? Um, these are just advice, by the way. I'm not perfect in any regard, in any way, shape, or form. But more details is probably better, um, while still preserving, like, client confidentiality. Um, so sometimes maybe it's like, hey, people are curious about, people were mainly entering in hours for work, let's say, if it was an HR kind of thing. And I had to clean up the data, and I wanted to see how many hours people work on average whether we have to give them healthcare if they're working over a certain number of hours, um, whether we're accidentally giving people overtime when we don't want to, or maybe we're not giving people enough overtime. Um, like whatever it is, you like share like kind of like the results and the value provided basically. So 
Yeah, just, quanti- just quantify stuff. Like yeah. when, when, when you were talking, you were talking a lot about it was good that you were talking about how they record the data, uh, mm-hmm. how it was presented to you, and who you were working with, which was the CEO and CFO mm-hmm. C-suite level. Yeah. Um, but more about like, um, you know, what maybe some of the specific specific findings were not not mm-hmm. using like names or anything, but just like you know, oh, we found uh, that they were misattributing a hundred thousand dollars of overtime costs or something like that. Because we did create, uh, Joel, if you remember, we did create an overtime cost uh, dashboard for them. This this was this mm-hmm. was when he then we were working with uh, a company in Silvertone. Um, mm-hmm. Joel was a part of that, and so that was something that we created. And so I would say, uh, like we were saying with with iterating on things, maybe just also just going back and checking the old work that you did as well, just refreshing your memory on that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, um, Michael, uh, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to repeat that question because uh, we were getting the the good old spotty this. Um, so it's happening. It's, happen- think... it's, ha- it's still happening right now. Okay, sorry. And the only reason I'm insisting on it right now is because we were at like a good place for me to just cut it and go to where you answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, wasn't my. Um, not quite still getting there oh um, let me tell you about my travels um, um and kind of making a little bit of money on the side while interviewing um outside of intel um and one big thing i kind of ran into was i wasn't at a company for a long time um, because intel time problems and intel didn't quite announce layoffs yet uh-huh and so one thing I kind of learned was if you're like, hey, why are you looking for a job? You haven't been at a company in a long time. I could have been like, um, one thing I, I learned to kind of say was, well, um, if you've been following the semiconductor industry, you know that, you know, earnings are down and that will affect, you know, various things throughout the company or that's affecting our competitors. I think it might affect us in the future or you know, without breaching confidentiality. Um, I kind of learned kind of a narrative for your career about why you're doing X or Y and Y. Um, essentially, like uh, education or boot camp or whatever it is to get another job is kind of have a narrative for that. Um, it was very valuable for me. Um, nice. They want to stick around Intel and get a pay reduction. Nice. Or get yeah. laid off. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I know that, well, specifically at Intel, Mm-hmm. Um, they've they've had a lot of hearty competition from from AMD, AMD and and a little bit from Nvidia, but not really. Really, mm-hmm. AMD is is the company that's coming up right now because nobody wants to pay a thousand dollars for a CPU or a mm-hmm. GPU. They just want to go get a GPU or CPU that gets the job done, mm-hmm. and you know, not not lose an arm and a leg for it. Yeah, and so. at the same time, semiconductor industry has been trash lately so it's, it's everyone too but it, intel's lost market share also um, bef- before before anything gets screwed up again you your cam- yeah you know your your camera is like good and your audio quality is good okay again, awesome so. sorry everyone yeah. so um going back to the hr thing um i know this wasn't your days that you're working on probably or same sort of type or anything um but you can mention like the value provided was let's say it was hr would be that you basically make sure you got you pay people the overtime they're legally 
uh, need to have or um, making sure that people enter their hours incorrectly. Um, it could, if it was HR data, you can also say like, make sure our employees are actually um, legally working for us, making sure they're actually alive in some cases. I've actually heard this one before where they, someone did some basic analysis of like, enter data for like hours and that employee ID was been used for eons essentially. And the employee was there like 110 years old. Um, so people were entering hours for someone else. Um, in some cases, people that were currently not living. Um, so there's a lot of like interesting narratives you can say without, you know, saying the name of the company or what you're doing. Cause and talk about the value, like, oh yeah, we prevent fraud in some case, or we mentioned that like, we realized that their budget was off or they weren't tracking something or we brought profit or certain products were bringing a lot more profit or a product, even though we lost leader, um, actually ended up bringing more money to the company, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, mm -hmm. that's a good point. Yeah. And the legally dead thing, by the way, that's actually real. I like, can't uh, believe that. <laughs> yeah. Stone was actually dead. Like dead for years too. Now I'm talking about a couple of years. So like looking at somebody's analysis, you find things you're not looking for, and somebody's bringing that to people is really important. <laughs> and that and that would be a great thing to bring up in an interview. It's yeah. like, hey, I tracked down a dead guy at this company. And yeah. Like, and then it's like, what? And then we're we're paying someone, you know, and that's depending on how where you are, jurisdiction, where country, whatever. That could be either loud or legal or. Um, there's some fraud in our company, or we paid someone that we fired years ago, um, or we didn't pay someone. Like, there's a lot of things for like HR that's kind of interesting, but even like products, like showing analysis, like what sells, what doesn't, um, is very useful depending on what you're doing with your data. Yeah. What kind of data do you have? And also, also once once you're done working on a project, uh, talking about the actual impact it made, you know what mm -hmm. what just happened, what happened for the company. Just all of the, just be well-rounded with it. Make it a really, like a full story. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm, exactly. And that's a beautiful way to say it. And the post-credits, <laughs> if necessary, if, if, if you want to yeah. do it like that. But yeah. Mm -hmm. um, cool. So, uh, Drew, Joel, do you guys have any other questions for, for Michael? We're going on a little over an hour now. I do not at this time. All right. Seeing none. <laughs> and, oh. and thank you so much for letting us, to, letting us talk. I know you're on the call for a while and we're talking mostly to each other. And in some cases, me going on a rant or a ramble. Um, really nice chatting and meeting you, both of you, um, as well as Hunter. We've known each other for a while. But yeah. 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 We're, uh, we're old chums. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a couple salty dogs out in the data industry. <laughs> Oh man, but okay. So once again, yeah, to all three of you, thank you guys for coming on. It's it's been a really great conversation we've had. I hope you guys have found this as informative and and pleasant as I have. Um, Michael, for for our listeners who want to reach mm -hmm. out to you, best way on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's great. Uh, Twitter's fine as well. Um, anywhere you can see me, feel free to do so. All right, perfect. So. Uh, for the also for those who are listening, uh, I I will have edited this video, but Michael, the little the little lag that he just had at the end here has been happening the whole time. <laughs> but and, it's it's okay; it's not his fault. And that's why I'm grateful for the three of you for putting up with it. Thank you so much. 
No problem. No, I'll, I'll put up with you anytime. <laughs> but once again, hey, thank seriously, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Right, bye, everyone. Bye. Take care. Bye. Hey, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I'm curious, were there any valuable insights or lessons that you learned? One thing that could hugely help us out is if you just took 30 seconds and left us a review with a little blurb about what you learned. Thank you so much for your time and attention, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.